Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've conducted over 430 of these by now. And uh, if this is new to you and you'd like to check out the previous ones, just go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu, where you'll see all the previous ones organized in several different ways. This uh, show consumes most of our time, Irene's and mine, and um, it wouldn't be possible to do this without the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So we really appreciate those who have been supporting it, and if you feel inclined to do so, there's a donate button on every page of the website, batgap.com. My guest today is my friend Joy Sharp. Um, I interviewed Joy, golly, about um, six, seven years ago. And uh, we felt it was sort of time for a, a, a repeat. Joy lives in Ridgeway, Colorado. I've been seeing Joy for nearly 20 years at events, uh, AMA events, Mata Amritananda Mai. And I uh, didn't really know her at first, but then we've gotten to know each other all over the years. And so even since the interview, we've been having meals together and taking walks together and all. And we ha I think we have a nice rapport and uh, I have great respect for Joy. And I think that people are going to enjoy this interview. I'm going to read a brief bio over here just to give you a sense of her background in case you didn't see the first interview with her, which I actually encourage you to watch if you like this one because there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, Joy was aware of the unseen magic of presence at a very early age. She remembers being more drawn to this mystery than anything else. This led her to delve into many traditions of spirituality. After a spontaneous awakening at age 28, Joy spent two years on a blissful honeymoon of spirit before plunging into a deep period of emotional purging and healing. Among her healers were a powerful Lakota medicine man who, with whom she traveled for two years and a group of Yogananda disciples who had developed a powerful way of unlocking unconscious beliefs using kinesthesiology. She worked with them three times a week for two years. During this period, it, uh, the formless aspect of the Divine Mother appeared to Joy and she became, began a very intense journey. Joy met Amma in 1993 and she realized that Amma was the same mother that had captured her heart and soul. Joy spent nine years in Amma's Indian ashram and then two years in Tiruvannamalai at Ramana's ashram. When Joy came home from India, she was completely exhausted and her seeker drive fell away. She began sitting with Adyashanti who helped her understand all that had taken place within her being. Joy began teaching in 2006 with Amma's and Ajay's blessings. Joy continues to be inspired and moved toward what life could be if we let go to our inner potential, which is the ultimate intelligence of all creation. So how'd that go, Joy? Does that sound like you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was really well done. And you also wrote a book, which I've been reading, which is very mm. well written and has a lot of good stuff in it. And I have about four pages of notes here that I've ex nice. excerpted from that book that we'll use as kind of main points to talk about. And I think there are two things that I probably end up talking about a lot with you today that don't get talked about a lot in these interviews or in the spiritual traditions in general these days, the spiritual community. One is devotion and another is the nervous system. And I think both are very important. Um, devotion, because I think it's the blossoming of that is a natural stage in people's evolution. And sometimes non-duality 
comes across as rather dry. And in fact, sometimes people in the non-dual community criticize devotion as being dualistic. And secondly, the nervous system, because it's my understanding and experience that the nervous system is the instrument through which we live any of this. You know, yeah. I mean, if we didn't have a nervous system, a brain, the whole physical structure, also it's subtle components. So there's a subtle aspect in the nervous system. This would not be a living reality. And so right. it's an important consideration factors and something that perhaps ought to be better understood. Yeah. And this is, this is part of, interestingly enough, it's what I'm a, my devotion to her, the gift that she gave me was to really start to explore that nervous system and what the being, what the body is experiencing through its devotion. And it's, it's, a, it's a real amazing dance that the being starts to experience through being able to open to what it's devoted to. And so they're, they're very much tied into one another, the devotion aspect and the being, which includes the, the nervous system, the brain, the mind, and all these very, very fascinating functions that occur there. There's a lot going on there that we can really um, start to explore within our own being. Uh, so how, how do you want to start, Rick? Do you want to start just talking about the devotional aspect first? Doesn't matter. Whatever comes to mind. This, I think this interview will, be a, interview will be kind of a combination between me jogging your, your memory or your, your thought process with little points I've written down and whatever we spontaneously talk about as we go along. Okay. So we can do both. And as I always say to my guests, if you have something in mind that I'm not, and the point's not coming up or I'm not asking the question, just come out with it, you know, it's just like we would in a normal conversation. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. You know, so devotion, we're evolving right now, and we're going to go through different levels of our way, right? And devotion for me has been that. It's, it's, it keeps revealing a new way to relate to this devotional aspect that I've experienced pretty much my whole spiritual journey. You know, devotion really is, is what we value. You know, I mean, so we can be devoted to really anything in life, anything that has deep value for us. Mm. And the value is something that's already, it's already in our being, it's already in place. So some people are going to value their children and some people are going to value being in service, whatever that looks like. For me, what showed up early in life was this presence, this God. I mean, it was like God was everywhere. And that became stronger and stronger. And the value, of course, I didn't know it at the time as such something that I valued. But now looking back, I could see that I really did. It was something that I continually tried to access. And in the early days, I wanted it. I wanted it with an intense longing. I thought it was maybe going to really help me. You know, my mind interpreted that longing as a certain, maybe having a certain outcome that it was going to uh, take me out into some other heaven, some other blissful place. But over time, that devotion has evolved. Hmm. 
Let me uh, say a couple things that I heard Maharishi say at least a hundred times and see what you think about them. This might take me a minute to state. Um, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, he was my teacher for many years. One is that he often said that devotion is a, a stage that can't really begin to blossom significantly until the self is realized. Because he said, until you know who you are, how can you really know what anything else is? And that once the self is realized, there's a foundation or a, uh, upon which profound appreciation of creation can really begin to blossom. And he said that prior to that, it would be like a small pond trying to rise up in great tidal waves. It would only stir up the mud at the bottom. But when the self has been established, yeah. then it's like this, it's like an ocean and the ocean can rise up in great waves without stirring up the mud. And he, he spoke of devotion as being a natural consequence of or actually almost synonymous with the ability to appreciate profoundly. That's, that's really beautiful. And I'll be the first to admit that in those early years of devotion, it was, it was pretty infantile. And I like the way that he said how it stirs it up because yeah. that's also my experience. Because those, those initial stages of devotion, what really starts to open us up mm -hmm. to something other than ourself, just that aspect of openness, that's gonna start to generate a, a more purifying energy because we're getting out of our way. We're, we're starting to say, oh, this is what I want. And you can feel that in your nervous system, right? Mm -hmm. So here we are experiencing what's happening in our being through opening up. And also what you just shared about what Marishi said about we don't really get to that true devotional place until we realize self. I can honestly say now, I know what that feels like, that thy will be done place, that complete availability for life to move through us as an instrument, right? This is where we're going. I just love how this is starting to work together, instrument and devotion, yeah. Good. He also said that, that you know, it may reach a, a climax in which appreciation is so profound that, you know, actual God consciousness dawns, appreciation of God and direct yeah. intimate personal relationship with God. And he, he said it was like, if there's an artist and he's a really great artist, and but nobody appreciates his work. He just kind of sits there and does his work. But if he keeps hearing that there's this guy who lives in this town and he really gets it, he really appreciates my work, you know, as I appreciate it, then that, that artist would come to meet that man. The man wouldn't even have to go to meet him. The, the artist would come to, because he would want to meet someone who has such deep appreciation. So he says that's kind of the way it is between the devotee and God when the appreciation yeah. has reached its uh, such a significant degree. Yeah. And that's going to get tested in mm, yeah. a, a big, big way, right? And yeah. that's the journey, right? That that devotion to truth or however we interpret it, our, our journey, it's, it's going to get tested again and again and again where, you know, what expect, expectations we might have about our journey, um, hopes, mm -hmm. um, settle places that we're going to want to hide or hang on to because devotion is going is it's gonna the whole point of devotion is to get us out of being wrapped up about ourselves and our life 
and our awakening and our enlightenment, our need for a certain experience, you know, that's, that's it. And the, the more mature devotion becomes, it's, it's just not our life anymore, mm. is it? Right. It's, it's been surrendered. It's, it's completely, it's completely let go of. Mm -hmm. And as we open up to that which we devote ourselves to, um, surrender becomes the way. Yeah, let's let's talk about surrender a bunch in a minute. I just want to make one final point with, before it slips my mind and, and have you respond to that. And that is that um, finally, he said that there may come a stage in which the sort of the, the God consciousness phase is shifting into unity. And there might be a feeling that one is losing devotion because there's no longer the I-thou relationship that, oh, that yeah. there had been, you know. And so one might feel like a little bit of chagrin, you know, like, what's happening? Am I losing this? But he, he often quoted Shankara as having said, the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. And Shankara yeah. and Ramana and Papaji and Nisargadatta and all of them were great bhaktas in addition to yeah. being great jnanis. Mm -hmm. They maintained this sort of I-thou relationship with their chosen ideal, the object of their devotion, in order to continue to experience the sweetness of that. And the sweetness, I just pray it never leaves because it is so sweet. It becomes something that has, you know, we're getting back to that place of value. That value touches our soul. It touches the depths of our being and it invokes a sense of beauty. And I mean, just, you know, to be able to offer oneself completely. There's this abandonment, right, of pretty much everything like I say we're gonna get tested about that so all these great sages great realized beings they didn't want to let go of that it, it was because it's so valuable it's so sweet it's so it's like a precious gift that God has given right I mean when you really know it in your soul, to be able to let go that deeply, you realize how precious it is. And again, it's something that we're going to be able to access when to let go. And we'll, like you say, we're going to talk about that. But to be able to, right? That's, and to keep finding our increasing capacity to do that. To love that much, to have that much value in what we're devoting ourselves to. So this is beautiful, and I'm really glad that you brought this point up about all these great um, yanis loving love, loving that aspect of loving God. I just yeah. that's yeah. Well, Thanks. the way I see it is the heart is a faculty; it's a component of what we are, just as the senses are faculties and the organs of action are faculties, and so on. And um, all of these different faculties tend to blossom rather than be lost or suppressed or something. You know, I see awakening or enlightenment as, as a full blossoming of all the different components and aspects of our, to our total being, right? And so it would stand to reason that, it seems to me that if there's some awakening which is devoid of devotion, which is dry, uh, and you know, not a lot of heart. Then it's it's a transitionary stage. It's not the final 
thing. Right. And we have to be really careful. I mean, I mean, look at it. Are we doing this for me? You know, do I want this path for me? Mm -hmm. Do I want this awakening experience for me? That's really where we get to see because that's probably where it's going to start to dry up. Yeah. And and we could that's another good point. It's a whole other subject about why is our journey stalling or becoming stagnant or becoming dry? There can be a few factors in there. But if we're looking at for this for myself, it can. It's a great place to come from to start on the journey. But when we start to realize that this is what we're trying to see through, to keep seeing through these subtle little places, subtle little agendas, that that's what's going to keep this invigorated, inspired. And that's that's one of the most important things. And devotion allows our being to be continually inspired. Such an important, important thing on our journey, right? That inspiration piece, because it can... I've heard over and over again from people, well, nothing's changing and da da da, and that's it. And Ajit talks about this too. He says, a lot of people stop. And why are they stopping? One of my first ideas might be because of not really tapping into a value, something that they value. I think that also points to the importance of knowledge, because if you have a clear understanding of, of the path, if you have a clear vision of possibilities, then you're not going to settle for anything less than the highest, if there even is a highest. I mean, it may just keep going forever as far as I know, but you know, you're not going to I... jump to the conclusion that oh, I'm done and get <laughs> stuck. And that's why it's useful to hear teachers and read scriptures and, and different sources of knowledge that um, perhaps exceed your present level of experience, but give you a, a sense of what others have actually achieved and experienced. Yeah. So that you might ho hold out hope for attaining that yourself. Yeah. And inspiration. You know, we have these examples like Ama. And Ama is the probably the most inspiring expression on the planet as she shows us what we're capable of, right? That's it. And to be able to kind of sense into our being, oftentimes I'll ask people, I'll say, do you sense that you're capable of more than you're experiencing? And 100% of the time people will say, yes, I always sense I'm capable of more than what I'm experiencing. You know, and so that's coming from a, a deeper intelligence, right? That's coming from a real, a real true place. And so we have to learn, you know, I think as a teacher, a teacher's job is to be able to allow the student to find something within themselves that's going to keep them going, right? To keep saying, can you know, right? And one of Aja's best quotes is questioning what we think we know. Because we're our own best way of really seeing if we're getting in the way of our journey. A teacher can say it, but we have a student has to be able to see it for themselves. And so, so a teacher's responsibility really is, is to, to question that, to give the student an opportunity to see for themselves how they're kind of 
maybe sabotaging their their way a little bit not necessarily sabotaging but slowing it down mm-hmm. or even choosing to stop it you may have noticed in skype my little tagline is uh, whatever you think it's more than that yeah it's from the incredible string band mine's similar mine says go beyond yourself yeah you and go. you'll find yourself yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and i just wanted similar. to wrap up a point you made a minute ago before we move on too far and that was about uh, you were talking about surrender and um whether you're doing this for me or not you know and i think that that links back to the point i made earlier which is that self-realization is really the foundation for a significant development of devotion and what self-realization means by definition is that your experience of what you are has shifted from a limited me to an an unlimited something Mm -hmm. and so if the motivation is i'm doing this for me then perhaps that shift hasn't taken place perhaps it hasn't but we get to start to see that it's not working and this is this is a path in itself. <laughs> you know, I'm doing it for me, and it is. It's a path for itself, and it it will if it stays that tight and that limited without the devotional aspect of openness, mm-hmm. which I will say again and again is essential on the journey. If it stays tight, and I want it, and I need to get it, and I it will eventually begin to fail. And that is a, that's a very valid path. It's, it's very valid because something is getting broken down in that. It's not getting what it wants. It's not working. But maybe that path, you know, there's so many infinite ways the journey kind of expresses itself. But one of the ways that I've seen it is maybe that me does get a little glimpse and immediately gets, oh, I've got it, right? And it, co-ops it, which a lot of people talk talk about, but it it will stay there. It will stay kind of stuck and it, it, it ceases to lose the inspirational level that the bliss of being able to open and open and open and, and not need experience. So me wanting awakening is a valid path. It's well, okay. Yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's often gets very you... premature to say to people, you know, just give up the search, you know, because I mean, yeah. that, that'll happen in its, in its own sweet time, but it's not something you just do, you know, abruptly. Right. Exactly. And a lot of times that journey is just the path to get it for itself is it's kind of a setup because we see so much along our way and as consciousness starts to become more aware of it of the the self the small self the ego structure how what it wants what it needs it will if it's set up that way it will be able to start to see oh i have been wanting this for myself and that alone can be a, a very, very deep, significant shift of consciousness. So who's to say that it's, it's not valid? And just the reasons why somebody is going to want it for itself. I mean, that's, there's a lot of reasons why people start on the spiritual path. And 
it's important to know that they're all fine to get out of suffering because an ego doesn't like itself. Yeah, I used, to, I used to give TM lectures to say this will help you sleep and lower your blood pressure, you know, good enough reason to start. <laughs> good enough reason to start. And so, you know, that's that's great, uh, you know, and starting is happening and consciousness is taking wherever the being is, wherever the soul is, to start right where, where it is. Yeah. And that's beautiful. That's perfect. It shouldn't be any other way than that. Okay. Yeah, and then so one I, thing I, leads to the next, like you were saying, and there are stages and shifts and tests and I mean it's just this ongoing journey. There's several interesting threads as you brought up I want to tie them together and as we go. One is the test thing that I just said. There's the surrender thing and um, let's talk about both of those. The, the test thing is we can talk about who or what might be testing us but there's the implication that we kind of have to prove our worthiness. That's generally what a test is when you graduate from, you know, some class in school. Are you worthy to go on to the next class? So, I mean, what would be the ramifications of graduating without being worthy? That's, that's a question. And is it even possible? I would say that one of the ramifications, I remember a book by Elizabeth H called initiation and it was this memory she had did you ever read that it's this memory mm -hmm. she had of, of living in ancient egypt this whole thing unfolded to her and she wanted to sort of move on faster than her teachers were advising but she was so insistent upon it that they let her and then she ended up having this fall which which took her a couple thousand years to recover from and and finally, <laughs> finally she was born as this woman in switzerland and had this whole memory of the, of the whole saga but there's a reason why traditionally perhaps the highest teachings and highest practices and this and that weren't just sort of given willy-nilly to anybody who came forward there was there was a sense of gradation and giving people not letting them bite off more than they could chew what do you think about yeah, that? I could say a lot. <laughs> yeah, say a lot. Go ahead. Okay. We've got all day. <laughs> I write. You know, we have a lot of teachings available right now. Mm -hmm. And the non-dual teaching that you are already that is a very enticing one. And when we have little shifts of consciousness that validate that teaching it's very important it's these these little validations are essential but a teaching is in itself limited always anything we can put to words is limited and the devotional path is, it will take us very, very, very far beyond words and teachings. Um, and the, re the real direct experience of an intimate communion with God, with the divine, through our being, is the ultimate satisfaction. That's really what we're looking for, right? This is what we're here for. The testing that our being goes through it's kind of like a what's the word i'm looking for it's a 
you know, it, it's everything is getting it's getting tested. It's it's getting primed like a stove, you know, like a backpacking stove. You get it warmed up. So it, it's our 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 vehicle is our vessel is worthy, like you said, of being a vessel for the divine, of being a vehicle. And not only be worthy, a, but capable. Capable. Because it yeah. can get fried if it's not. Exactly. Yeah. And so we're discovering our capacity within this within this realm of devotion and letting go okay so our our being is discovering its capacity as it's being primed and so that could be kind of like the testing and the testing is going to be in this moment like we're going to be in these little crossroads am i choosing can i sense the invitation to let go or is the being quite not ready to let go, which is the, the capacity, right? Being capable. And is it going to instead want to hide behind a teaching or an experience or just some idea or, or need for security, what, whatever it might be. So this testing is really discovering the capacity. Is the being capable of letting go this much right now and it's it's such a beautiful organic way of unfolding i mean and we all that have been on the path we've we've realized this in ourselves that there's something incredibly organic happening here right and the testing is part of that and we get to so that our being starts to recognize its own inherent capacity to let go. It's our being that's starting to realize its own capacity to be a vehicle for the divine. And this is allowing it. Precise about our terms here. I mean, our mm -hmm. being is starting to recognize its capacity to be a vehicle for the divine. You just said so. Yeah. You know what? And what do we? How do we define? our being that which is a, a vehicle are we t i think we're talking about our whole makeup including our nervous system i would yeah, yeah. everything it's everything right. right and this being that we've we've known as ourselves our whole life there's there's something that's stayed the same throughout all that and that's just our awareness of of our locality you know where we are and then the being is you know everything that it is right now in this moment all experiences all fears i mean it, it's 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 the whole package and yeah. we'll, we'll we'll talk about that some more because our being is capable of undergoing radical transformation through its association with presence mm -hmm. i mean this is this is really where this is really where my my interest starts to really show up yeah. and and our being is discovering its own capacity to let go what to what it knows mm -hmm. right previous from previous stuff because the enlightened condition and i really want to share this from amma's definition is something that's always fresh and always new and never before all right 
So in this moment, our being has the capacity to move into something that it's never before experienced. So that's that's really what we start to to feel, right? That's 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 true, and it's our our beings, our nervous systems are capable of knowing that all the time. Something new, something fresh, something never before. Right. And yet, perhaps something always the same, in addition to always being new and fresh and never before. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that aspect, and thank you for that. That's the, the clarity, right, that's moving through our being. They can see that it's, it's right where it wants to be in this new, never-before place. And clarity is what we have access to in, a, in an increasingly clearer way, mm. okay? Um, we could talk about that too. <laughs> I know that's on your notes. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a couple of thoughts here that that evokes. Uh, one is a quote that you wrote down here uh, from Amma saying, enlightenment is the art of relaxation. And uh -huh. that could be taken superficially, I think, of, yeah, yeah, just chill, go to Mexico and just lie on the beach and you know, you'll get more relaxed. Not do anything, yeah. <laughs> right? uh, but what I experience it to mean is that there are, you could say, um, tight spots in the nervous system and perhaps in, in its mental counterpart, uh, which have to be relaxed. And you don't relax them all in one sitting or in one day or anything like that. There's this sort of progressive unwinding of these tight spots and I, you talk about that in your notes too um here, here you go you say it actually when presence begins to open our being up these knots within our system begin to loosen as the field of consciousness as presence begins to awaken within us these beliefs within our nervous system and i, I think they're not only beliefs which is a mental connotation but they're yeah you know, they're really neurophysiological structural things are awakened as well back into the field Loosening up the nervous system even more as we empty out of beliefs and fears our nervous system is transformed Literally changing the way we see everything changing our perceptions of life um, And of course there's actually research on this stuff Rick Hansen and others talk about neuroplasticity And there have been all sorts of studies with EEG and fMRI and so on showing that you know the brains of spiritual practitioners uh, really transform over time, not overnight, but over years, yeah. uh, to be completely different functioning entities than, than they were at the outset. Beautiful, yeah. Okay, right up our alley here. <laughs> um, and I appreciate, yeah, the neurological knots that happen, and we all know what that feels like in our being when we're experiencing a situation that's scary, we feel a contraction. Mm -hmm. um, and Where those, were we going? Well, and also those knots are not just sort of something felt in the moment, but let's say you almost get hit by a car or something like that, and it creates this shock to the system. Yeah. And, and you, you know, for years, uh, for the rest of your life, you may be really skittish around intersections or something because there's yeah. an impression that was made. I mean, there are people who are afraid of dogs. There are all the soldiers coming back from from you know Iraq and Iran or Iraq and, and Afghanistan with PTSD. The, the nervous system sort of gets imprinted. By, yeah. by these stressful impressions and that gunks up the works, you know, and, and yeah. those need to be unwound. Yeah, yeah, and we're carrying those through from who, you know, who knows how long we've been carrying yeah. those knots some, some through. Some lifetimes. Yeah, 
And so we all know, you know, for those of us that have been a practitioner for a long time and, and when we're sitting in meditation and as we're dropping down, you can feel something in your nervous system sort of relinquish mm -hmm. like it. It's just like a, a relinquishing. And, it, you know, our being is starting to realize, oh, it can let go. Yeah. Oh, it can let go. And that that realization and, you know, the nervous system is discovering its own capacity to, to, to let go, to be opened as it's being touched by presence. Because that's where we're sitting. As we're sitting in, in meditation, we're allowing something to take place, mm -hmm. right? We're getting out of the way. If we sit in meditation and we're trying to have something, experience something, it's never going to work. It, it requires this relinquishing of control, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because the, the transformation that we're talking about here is far too complex for the individual will to orchestrate. It would be like trying to um, orchestrate your digestion. You know, it's better to just leave it to nature and to just sort of, you know, I mean, if you if you eat a big heavy meal and then uh, start running a marathon, that's not good timing because you're interfering with digestion by your actions. So you have to set up the conditions to allow nature to do its thing, which in this case might be a meditation or spiritual practice. But once you've done so, you don't interfere and, it, and it'll take it'll take care of itself. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is where that devotional aspect is going to really show up for us, too, is getting out of the way enough and allowing something to happen that our mind doesn't know, right? Mm -hmm. we, we, we can't understand on any kind of level of what's happening, but we can sense it through our being and this beautiful, beautiful sensing organ that, can, that senses presence, that senses the divine. You know, that's how we know we're sitting in presence is because we sense it within ourself. It's not something that's happening outside of ourself. We recognize presence through our the sensing mechanism, through the presence that's within it, mm. right? That's So it's using the field, consciousness, or presence, whatever you want to term you want to use here, is using the nervous system deeply not only to know itself, but actually to open the being up more. Right? Yeah. yeah. And this is going to um, calm. It feels good to the nervous system. Yeah. It, it's like, a, it, it's like the, the most healing thing that can happen to it. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, I mean, this is, this is what real peace is. It's when our being knows that it's being completely molded and taken care of and transformed and shaped in a way that it can't understand yet, always before or never before, always new, right? And, and letting it letting it come in in a way that our our being starts to recognize that this is what it's made for. This is why. It, it, it no it can know presence so just for this yeah 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 there's an interesting thing here which is the the sort of the mind body correlation how they they're they're interrelated and connected and influence one another and um, 
I've had experiences where I'm sitting in meditation and, and all of a sudden my body will just convulse. You know, be, if someone were watching me, they'd see me just sort of jump or something. And then there's this huge sort of oh, relaxation and yeah. expansion that takes place. Yeah, yeah. From playing too much pickleball. From playing too much pickleball, Irene says. <laughs> yeah, these days I see pickleballs flying at me while I'm meditating. <laughs> it's a very intense game. Uh, you have an interesting section in your book where you talk about while you're sitting in, in Amma's presence in her ashram and you're going through all this stuff, you know, all these kriyas and, and you know, fast breathing and, and you're sweating and, and then you, you finally come out of it and open your eyes and everybody's staring at you, you know. But, but there's been some kind of physiological catharsis taking place. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, sometimes presence is going to get very energetic. It's going to really um, start to fire things up. And this is to inspire the system. Who knows why? You know, maybe it really did need to burn some things out. Because I also remember sitting in the ashram, just being in this incredibly uncomfortable place of, of burning and kind of an angst. You know, so, you know, but who knows what really is happening within our nervous system. Those days, that's what it did, right? It doesn't do that anymore. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, yeah, it doesn't need to. Right. But it's still feel, I can still feel in our in my system when I sit, and I sit every day, um, when it kind of bumps up against something. And that's what happens when we become more sensitive, right? It, it's, it's like the field is bumping up against something, and it's, it's almost like it's talking to the, the being, talking to the nervous system. Because this is a, you know, this is divine intelligence. And, and how it, and it's not necessarily, especially when we're sitting in meditation, we're really not focusing on what the being is experiencing, although thoughts might show up in the form of situations and stories or whatever. But oftentimes we're just being and we're allowing the field to come in and kind of have its way with us, right? And and as it's bumping up against something, it's going to be more of a, a felt sense. And that's all it is. We don't even know what that felt sense needs to be about. We, it, it's not necessary. But it gets, to, it's, this is really interesting. It almost starts to feel like presence is like tinkering. <laughs> and I have felt it in my brain um, a lot. And I want to share something. I heard Aja talk about this recently, just for the littlest minute. And it all it was almost like he didn't quite want to go there. Um, but I, I caught it. And, you know, we have this brain. Yeah. And it's not being used a lot. It's it's very, very small percentage of it is being utilized. And so can we allow presence to come in, the field to come in and start tinkering, right? Mm -hmm. Let it do what it wants. Sure. It knows how to work in there. And so this is something the being starts to recognize too. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'm on board. I'm in total cooperation with what's happening, whatever that might look like. Yeah. Well, 
Yeah, I mean, we're talking, and we've alluded to this already, but we're talking about actual physiological transformation. And uh, there's been research on this with fMRIs and stuff showing that, you know, long-term meditators have ra rather different brains in terms of the way they, yeah. they function. And I'm, probably many people listening to this, you and I both have, uh, have sat in meditation and felt stuff changing in the brain. Yeah. I mean, not that the brain has any sensory ability. They say that you can, you know, in brain surgery, they don't have to anesthetize the brain because it doesn't feel the way your arm would, but you can feel stuff shifting and popping and moving and re relaxing and, you know, tingles of energy and, and all kinds of stuff going on in the physiology while you're, while you're going. Through. Yeah. 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 Which is and and nice. yeah. Yeah, because the big, the, the deepest evolution is going to be through being, right? Mm -hmm. It is going to be through the embodied being, which is the field within the being, right? The what's moving the being, because that is going to be able to know itself um, more mm, intimately. More in I like that word. Yeah. I like that word. Yeah, closer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And because there's nothing going to be right, it really in the way that it's having to work through, um, and and this has to kind of go along with this what I talked about with clarity. The word, the term, yeah, I was just clarity. Read this little section from your notes here. This is what clarity is looking for, so that all parts of our being can be integrated, made conscious. Honesty leading to clarity. Clarity is that dynamic aspect of presence, the aspect that sees and heals with grace. So clarity, yeah. I mean, we want the, this instrument to be a, a clear vessel for the expression uh, and manifestation of the divine. We don't want it to be um, mu muddied up with and opaque, you know, yeah. which, which is the opposite of clarity. Yeah. 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 So I, I've been liking this term a lot lately. Um, you know, it, we can use terms like awareness um, or presence, but awareness is something that's it is simply aware. I'm aware that I'm having this experience. Awareness can be aware of itself. Clarity kind of evokes more of a, a an attribute of that which sees. Um, which which can really be activated, really be um, what's the word I'm looking for? Accessed within our being. Okay, and everybody has access to clarity, and you know everybody. I sit with people, and I people convinced are trying to convince me that they don't have it, but it, they're you know I can see that it's 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 happening with within them, and clarity is something that that's able to to recognize simply what's going on in the being. When would you, clarity, would you agree that there are degrees of clarity, and it's something that gets cultured over time and becomes more and more clear? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. So clarity is 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 something that's be is also evolving. You could say um, as it's be being used, being utilized, being accessed, like using a muscle. And just we've talked about this before, I think. But clarity has another component to it. Okay, and because clarity is that which has 
not only the the capacity to see and to be aware, it also has the capacity to relinquish, to use the being, to know itself. It has capacities inherent within it. And one of its most important essential capacity is grace, what's called grace, right? And that's this capacity for transformation, for deep-seated um, change, okay? Grace isn't something that like allows us necessarily just to awaken. Grace is also something that shifts what's not conscious within our being as let's say we're bumping up against something that maybe is afraid for no reason, okay? And as we start to become curious about that place that we feel within our nervous system, because that's where, how we're gonna know it's there because we're gonna feel it within our nervous system as a knot, right? Like we talked about. We're, first, we're gonna start out by being aware of it. And then if clarity's strong enough, and as it's getting stronger, we're gonna be able to see it not only objectively, but without judgment, right? This is also something that's extremely important and not dismiss it, not avoid it. Clarity does not dismiss or avoid ever. Clarity is the field with the capacity inherent within it. Clarity also has the capacity to enter into that which it sees, clarity, okay? And it has also, because it doesn't see with judgment, it has this capacity within it to integrate, to bring home, to include that which doesn't know it's God, those parts of our being, all right? Yeah. As you say this, as you talk about clarity, for some reason the Guna model came to mind, you know, Satwa, Rajas, and Tamas, and um, those qualities are often defined with reference to clarity, Tamas being very obscuring and dark and, and uh, opposed to clarity, and Rajas too in its own way, excitement, passion, mm -hmm. you know, turbulence and so on, that obscures clarity. And they say that uh, Rajas destroys Tamas, and sattva destroys rajas. So there could, in some cases, be a progression through those predominance of those gunas in a person's makeup as they go along. Uh, but sattva is associated with clarity. Um, and there's also that verse in the Bible of seeing through a glass darkly, but later on seeing clearly, you know, through a clear glass. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's this sort of component of um, purification of one's nervous system and one's being so as to have it be a clearer vessel. I think that relates to what you're saying here. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to start to become, the more clarity is realized as self, right, 
we're going to start to be able to use it. We're going to, because we were now identified with what sees, right? We're going to start to realize our own capacity for clarity, okay? We're going to start to step into that. And this is, this is when things get really kind of fun. This is when things get really interesting. Because when things arise within our being, within the nervous system, we're not going to be like, okay, I got to sit with this. I got to deal with this. We're going to want to see it with our clarity. Right then and there. Right then and there. Yeah. There is no like trying to work with it. And this is what we're discovering within our being is how, how to use our clarity, right? And, and, and to be that. And, and not only just being able to see, but being able to go in and heal, integrate all parts of our being. And this happens, can start to happen increasing with increasingly more efficiency. It doesn't have to take all day or an hour. It yeah. can happen well, quite that's a good quickly. That's, yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. And, and, and this, this grace that's inherent within our clarity, it's that place that doesn't, the mind doesn't really understand. It's that component of, I always kind of see it as something alchemical, right? But if we can imagine, you know, the form and the formless, right? The formless being the clarity and the form being our being, our nervous system. All that formless wants to do is go into the form and inform it of what's true, mm -hmm. right? And that's all it's doing. And it does it by touching it, by encountering it, by entering into it in this very, very kind, non-judging, compassionate, you could even say, way. Because those places within our being that don't know that they're God too, you know, that's, they're separate. That's that's not a very ideal way to live. It's, it's not a very nice way to, to feel, to feel separate and, and not connected. But the minute that clarity goes in and starts to touch it, that integration process has already begun. It's already starting to bring those aspects of our being home. So that separation is just literally coming back into the sea, right? The salt doll into the sea. Um, that kind of, that's the, the feeling. It doesn't, it, you know, it's, it's not a thing, those parts of our being that feel separate. It's not a thing. Like you said, it's these neurological knots. There are functions within the nervous system that have been necessary to protect themselves, to, to be somebody in the relative world that have yeah, and I created... Think they have their counterparts, I think, in the subtle body. Um, it's not just something you, yes, you, you they find do. with mm -hmm. fMRI or under a microscope or something. They're, and um, we do have, I don't know if everybody buys this idea, but we do have subtle bodies as well as gross. And all of creation has a subtle realm, yeah. which is not material and uh, which is actually inhabited by subtle beings. But anyway, we as human beings 
traverse the whole range from gross to subtle yeah. to transcendent. And clarity, as I think you're describing it, would want to continue to house clean on all those levels until there is no occlusion anymore. Right, right. And, and the subtle bodies, they're going to show up within the nervous system when they're time. Yeah. And this is how the being can recognize that that's there. And they're because, being purified even if we're not aware of them. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's not necessary that we know that we're purifying them mm -hmm. all the time. That's why this openness is so essential continually on the path. It doesn't matter how realized or how integrated or whatever word you want, want to use. All those words start being really <laughs> irrelevant, actually, you know, yeah. when we're, when we're um, being, being shaped. Uh, this is what's happening now. Um, but the openness aspect and the devotion to it is really kicking in now. Um, our for, being no for people or for 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 everybody. This yeah. is where this. I mean, this is where what I'm talking about on the journey can be experienced no matter where we are. Mm -hmm. Okay, working on the level of the nervous system. But the deeper we go, that devotional aspect is is going to be tested deeper and deeper and deeper, right? Isn't it? It's going to be um, called forth mm. until the being really knows that it didn't, it doesn't want to hang out in my life anymore. It only wants to be a vehicle for the divine. Mm -hmm. It only wants to be shaped and made into that to be worthy of service, whatever that might look like by the way, you know, uh, yeah. On, on this note, <laughs> I want to bring up a point that we kind of, we're both sitting here with pictures of Amma behind us. And, I know, and we both get to see them. <laughs> yeah, and there's a kind of a common sentiment these days in the spiritual community that the, the guru phase has ended. And Scott Killaby yeah. just posted a video about that. A lot, and a lot of people say that, you know, that, that that's kind of an antiquated mode of teaching or something and and that it's no longer relevant and and so on um i think that some people who say this are, are trying to function as teachers and that's what a guru is so i'm not sh I'm not sure if there might be some inconsistency there um but what, what would you have to say to someone who presented you with that objection well depends on the person yeah. and the situation um you know, everybody has their way, mm -hmm. but, you know, here in the West, um, people have a kind of an idea that it, there's a very individualistic energy in the West, whereas you go to India and it, it's very tribal. Um, there's, there, it's, it's, the support system is, is extremely valued there and here you know you've got a lot of isolation you've got your family over there you've got your family over there you've got your family over there I've got my kids you've got your kids and everybody takes care of their own mm -hmm. 
Um, for me, and I can only really talk about my own experience. I don't know what really another person know, needs, except when I really encounter them and I can hear their ideas and their beliefs about teachers and gurus. And there are a lot of those, by the way, and I see them all over the place. For me, my relationship with Amma has been um, also in a process of evolution over the years, as it should be. It started out a certain way, and it's it's continually evolving. But through it all, it's been a support system. That's that's mainly what a teacher is. is a, it's a support system. And a teacher isn't here to teach you anything or to tell you anything like what to do and how to do it. And I think a lot of Westerners think in their minds that that's what a teacher does is somebody that's here to tell you what to do and to teach you things. Where when I grew up with Amma, I didn't have any teachings. I had no teachings at all. And so when I was undergoing this process, I had no idea what was going on, but I had openness. That's the one thing that I had going on for me. And that was very valuable. And I mean, it wasn't until later that I really sat with Aja that I, my formal teaching um, period started. And that was, that was so perfect. But getting back to kind of Ama's role in, in my journey is the support system. And also, in the support system, which we need, it, it will change over time what a support system is going to look like. But the support system allows us to start to see and access, access our own clarity. This is what a teacher or a guru does. They're, they're here to, so we can access our own clarity. They don't want us to be dependent upon them. That's what a real teacher does. If a, there's a teacher that that isn't wanting to access you to access your own clarity, that's not going to be very satisfying for you as a student, right? And Amma uh, has continually like kind of like pushed me back into myself, almost like find out for yourself. She never gave me a teaching that I could hide behind or hold on to or believe in. And even my <laughs> early years when I just wanted to be with Amma and be included in the group that traveled with her. I mean, I, you know, we go through this. I, I just, I wanted my being the separate self wanted to kind of like have a place to land in Amma. But Amma never gave me a place to land. She continually pulled, took away things to land on. And this is, of course, you know this, this is the true definition of guru, which means to remove, right? To remove, to take away. Yeah. Continually removing places that the separate self is trying to land on. It comes from two Sanskrit works, roots that mean darkness and light. And so, you know, the guru is sort of removing darkness by adding the second element of light. Okay, good to know. Well, my experience was she just kept taking away. That's all I knew. I that too. But 
but but in you know and this is this is interesting because it by taking away right we access our own light yeah it's like taking it's, it's all, filters off a of light that's that's keeping the room dark because there's stuff there in the way yeah, yeah yeah so we're almost being forced into it and the dependency it, it, it's not there yeah. and you know and i went to ama many years ago many years ago and i i asked her about my attachment to her form because at one point i was very attached to her i always wanted to be with her but yet i wanted truth more so i went to her and i asked her about it and she said it's a vehicle it's a support system the form is nothing but that it gives you some sort of anchor while really literally the rest of your world is being taken away which is not an easy process to undergo right but you have something supporting you in that but it's not something that the ego can hold on to it's something that the being can hold on to right yeah does that make sense yeah it does yeah uh, you know and and that's a big broad conversation you know maybe you have some more questions about that about the role of teachers and why so many people are kind of well, I, there's one thing is that there have been so many weird stories about things happening with teachers, and we get feedback from time to time about, you know, people we've interviewed, this or that, or the other person who is doing things that we find troubling. And, um, you know, so some people have kind of given the whole field a bad name. And, and uh, you know, I think that's part of the reason why some people are saying, let's get rid of that whole model. It's not yeah. working, you know? Right. And I can only say to those people that I would look and see where there's that's coming from. I mean, where we're going is is into a, 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 the autonomous condition, right? That we're completely self-reliant. But yet, I also know Amma, she's going to be with me, be with me for as long as I acknowledge that she's here, and. But it, and it's still a support system. It's still a means of inspiration because she's saying, "You can do this too. You can be a very capable being." I think any guru worth her salt or his salt, they don't want dependency. I mean, maybe there's a stage at which it's useful to sort of for the kitten to be with the mother and whatever. Yeah, oh, this is a good metaphor, actually. Have you ever raised cats? And you see there's a certain stage at which the mother is very protective of the kittens and close with the kittens. Yeah. And then they yeah. reach a certain age and the mother starts hissing at them. And it's like right. shocking to see because you love these little kittens and you love the cat. But the mother's saying, nope, time to be on your own. So ultimately, no guru worth their salt wants to have dependence around them no. eternally. Uh, there's got to be a shift to self-sufficiency. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and because that what's true in us, you know, which is the clarity, doesn't want dependency. Clarity only wants more clarity. And that's also going to, it also means taking place in, in, its, in the students, yeah. right? That's, and people often say that I, I feel like kind of like a tuning fork when I work with them, that that field that I'm sharing with the student 
or with the friend, it, it, it's setting itself up. It, it's like it's it's kind of resonating with what we're speaking about. And that's what I feel when I'm with Amma is that field that we're sharing is is like talking communicating with each other and and that's the same when I work with people that's what I feel is happening is that the field is working with itself within the student within the teacher and it doesn't necessarily mean what we're talking about but it's the clarity through which that student is being able to start to access for themselves and that is what gives me satisfaction yeah. That 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 that's what's happening for them. Dependence, no, no. you know that's that's not going to work here, um, ever. <laughs> well, the, the tuning fork um, metaphor is a good one because you know how you you can strike a tuning fork and then bring another one near it, and that second tuning fork will start to resonate because of right. the resonance of the first one. Yeah. And um, and this whole thing of transmission, you know, from a teacher. My understanding and experience is that it's not that some energy is being sort of sent like a ball of light to, from point A to point B, but that there's a sort of a uh, an attunement of the fields, of, yes. the, of the fields, so that your frequency and the frequency of the teacher, your frequency begins to align more closely with the frequency of the teacher. Um, yeah. And, and, and just one final point and one more metaphor is I've heard Ama use the example of a brightly burning log. And if you put another log near it that's not burning, that that log will start to burn. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Those are all good metaphors, but it has nothing to. None of those examples have anything to do with dependency or telling mm -hmm. people how, how to live their lives or or anything like that. It's, it's really just a matter of um, you know affinity and resonance and um, you know getting onto a, a better wavelength by virtue of proximity to someone who is on a good one. Yeah. And if you're, you know, if you really want the truth, you're, you know, your, your level of discernment is going to, you know, you're going to need to start using it for yeah. sure. And you're going to start recognizing people that inspire you. Um, and you're going to want to hang around with people that inspire you. And, and there's recognize when something's off. Yeah. And you're going to recognize when something's off. And I've noticed that there's a lot of very clear people out there. Um, and they're not necessarily teachers, but the level of, of integrity is it's very obvious. Mm -hmm. it, and that's those are those are the beings that are being called forth. Mm. It doesn't, you know, and if people are wearing the hat of a teacher, but they don't have that level of integrity, and that that ego structure still needs a place to land. And being a teacher is a really great one, right? An ego structure that is found. The teaching place to land is not likely to give that one up because that's a it's a really good one. You mean if it's an uh, ego motivated um, assumption of that role, as you're you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and I then it goes to their heads and and things get really weird and yeah. Yeah, it becomes extremely protected and needed to be be maintained. Yeah. Whereas a real teacher and I you know I even told you I have a I struggle with that term mm -hmm. I don't see myself as a teacher I because I don't teach necessarily I talk and I it looks like I'm kind of teaching but it's the field that I'm feeling and I can I can feel when a student is open and when they're not sure. that's and it 
and when a teach when a student is open, it it feels like it feels like clarity kind of pouring itself into a, another. It, it 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 just there's a, there's a an ease of access, mm. <laughs> you might say. Yeah. And and yeah. if there if it's not closed, there's not any ease. Yeah, you access. know, Marshy had a good analogy for this. He said that uh, a teacher, a true teacher, is like a reservoir. And um, the reservoir doesn't really do anything, but it's up to the student to sort of bring a pipe up to it. And according to the circumference of the pipe, will be the, you know, the, the, the force of the flow of water. If it's a really big pipe, a lot of water can flow, but it's really up to the, <laughs> the student to bring up an, an adequate pipe. Right. <laughs> and that's almost as the same thing. And, you know, and that goes along with, with being open, right? Yeah. And Amma says, it's not up to the teacher. It's up this, to the student to be receptive. Yeah. Period. She didn't, you know, deviate in any sort of way. It's if you don't have receptivity and you only have your own ideas, then it's going to be kind of difficult for a teacher to get in there. But maybe given time, those, those ideas aren't going to work for that student. Mm -hmm. And then they'll say, okay, I, this isn't working, yeah. right? And some level of kind of receptivity born from humility will start to happen. I think your use of the word discernment is, is apt. I, I think that um, whether you have a teacher or not, whatever teacher you may or may not have, um, it's important to do whatever you can to culture discernment and never to relinquish that. And um, it's just an extremely valuable quality on the path for anybody. And I, I don't think any really legitimate teacher would discourage that. They, yeah. On the contrary, they would encourage it. Right. The the legitimate ones. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, I remember when I lived in Sedona um, in the 80s, and it was small then, but there was still a lot of new age kind of stuff going on. I mean, it was everywhere, really. And, um, and that's, and I could feel the discernment kick in. And it was, it was a lot of no's. <laughs> way, way, way more no's than yes. Yeah. You know? And I could see the people that were really working on themselves, and that was when I started hooking up with those the disciples of Paramahansa Yogananda. And you know that was way back in in the mid '80s, and yet discernment was starting to kick in. Like this is what this being needs, right? And so it's not about what everybody else is doing. You got to tap into your own self. And that that's very important that we're not following the sheep because what your being needs is never, ever, ever going to look like everybody else's. It's always going to be different. And it's going to keep going into places where nobody else is going, especially later. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw a funny cartoon yesterday. It was a bunch of, I think it was a Gary Larson cartoon who did the far side. It was a bunch of sheep standing around at a cocktail party, and one sheep was saying to the other, this party is a disaster. Nobody knows where to stand. Nobody knows what, what to do. And then you see in the background this uh, this border collie at the door, and the, and the other sheep says, oh, thank God, a border collie. <laughs> He'll get us organized. <laughs> right. And there's the dependence, right? There, there it is. It's showing up. You're a sheep, you're going to be dependent. Yeah. And, and that would be, you know, why we can't call the dependent sheep 
faulty until they realize that they haven't learned to stand up for themselves. They haven't learned to access their own clarity. They're still relying on the teacher to tell them how to do it. They're still relying on maybe their a teaching how to do it. Or even they're still relying on an experience that they've had in the past on how to do it, right? And why I say this is going to take us continually into places we've never been before is because it does. And that's that level of autonomy that is extremely hard one. This isn't easy to keep using your own level of discernment on what you need, mm -hmm. right? Because it's going to take you beyond the sheep, way, way, way beyond the sheep. Would you say that discernment's like a muscle which can get strengthened through use? And if so, what kind of exercises, and I use this, the term somewhat metaphorically, would you recommend for strengthening it? Well, hopefully we're being, we're being able to access that in the beginning of our journey rather than like after we've you know, maybe got kind of stuck into kind of a sheep mentality or being brainwashed by teachings, which this is, this is really important. People get brainwashed by teachings and they're not using discernment. And, you know, the separate self will try to find places to land. Okay. And discernment is something that is, is, a, is on a level of intuition, which is a different place than what the separate self is operating from. Okay, so we want to access those, that deeper knowing. That's what we're here to do. And that deeper knowing is what we need right now versus what we think we need or what we want to need, what's going to give us a place of security and feeling safe. Discernment often brings us into a place that doesn't feel safe, but it's also a deep knowing that this is what I need. I do need to let this go. I do need to stop following the pack and do what everybody else is doing. Discernment is also like, what am I growing? Am I changing? Right? Because that would be a way to access discernment. Or you could even call discernment a level of honesty. That am I really trying to feel safe in community, in Sangha? in teachings, or am I ready to start to access this deeper place in myself that says, this is what I need. Mm. This is what I need. This is what I need. That's very important. And did that answer your question? It kind of did. And while you were answering it, I had a couple of thoughts. One was I, I thought of this quote from the Buddha, which I just looked up as you were speaking. He said, Believe nothing, no matter where you read it or who said it, no matter if I have said it, unless oh, it agrees yes. with your own reason and your own common sense. 
Um, and I like that one. And, and also, um, kind of something I do is I, I give everybody the benefit of the doubt, but at the same time, I take everything with a grain of salt. You yeah. know what I mean? And that, I, yeah, I see that. I see that in you. Yeah, and that's kind of <laughs> paradoxical. If, if somebody says that bees come from Venus or something, I'll think, all right, maybe, you know, <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't know. But another way of putting it is, to me, everything is a, is a scientific hypothesis. Every claim that every religion has ever made or anything else is something that could potentially be investigated if we have the means to do so, which doesn't mean that I doubt everything. And obviously with hypotheses uh, in science, there are some which have a lot more credibility than others and have been verified to a much greater extent than others. And so that's true in my own experience too. I mean, there's some certain things that I, I'm 99% sure are true, but there's always that 1% of who knows, maybe something will change, you know? Um, but that way, if you have that kind of attitude, at least it works for me, then yeah. you're not kind of rigid. You're not clinging. You don't take things on blind faith. You're, you kind of stay open. There's that word again. There's that open. word again. Yeah. Open. Or it's it's also that, that way of you don't know until you do, right? I mean, really know. And that's the beautiful thing about not having a teaching, but yet having a very, very strong impulse to know for sure for yourself, yeah. right? And that's, I was fortunate to have that. And it was, I was very driven at an early age, but yet the impulse, right again, it, it allowed me to access my own discernment, my own, it's like an inner GPS, which is going into a place that is about our own evolution. Yeah. And, and it's really let behind, left behind most teachings. Mm -hmm. But yet, when there is a direct encounter of self, it's like you know it. And that's that self-validation piece, right? Let it be your own experience. Because if it's a teaching and you're believing it, the tendency is to make it, like you said, rigid and dogmatic. Yeah. And that's happening a lot these days. Sure. And people are like frothing at the mouths, defending their belief in their teachings. And yeah. it's when you have your own experience, you don't need to defend anything. No. I it's mean, there not, have been so many wars fought over that attitude and people drive cars into crowds over that attitude. and. And there are all these political fights and, and so on and so forth, where if people could just sort of release the grip a little bit, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> and not not be so um, cocksure of, of one's own rightness and certain you know certainty. But that's such a great example of that separate self finding a place to land, and it's a security. It's a false security. Exactly. It's that that's the perfect word. It's like. It's like holding on for dear life because you want certainty. You want some kind of absolute value in life. Not having access to something which is actually ab actually absolute, you you try your darndest to make something relative absolute. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. And that's, that is not, that's false. Yeah. That's false. It's, it's such a false sense of security, but it feels so real to that which is looking for it. It feels very 
solid. But it's always tenuous. You're always on shaky ground. And this, and this is exactly where we are. We're on shaky ground. And one of the things I shared with you that happened last year with Amma, I shared with you that, you know, for two weeks I sat in her presence in this state of absolute not knowing. I couldn't find anything to know if my heart depended upon it. And I, all I knew was this clarity, right? Clarity. And not knowing, when you really have an absolute sense of not knowing, it does feel shaky. It's extremely vulnerable. I mean, because you're really letting go of any place that that, that separate self might look to land. Okay? I mean, just showed me a note saying driving the cars into people is mental illness, psychopathic. And that's true. But it's, it's a mental illness which is characterized in part by hubris to an extreme degree, by a, a certainty that I am right and I am going to do this, you know, for Allah or for whatever. And it's an extreme, profound degree, sickly profound degree of this yeah. tendency, which I think we all have to some extent, and which you, oh, are, of course. Which you yes. and I are talking about rooting out. There's a beautiful little saying, I don't know if it came from Ramana or Papaji or one of these people. He said, it's free fall forever, but the good news is there's no ground. You know, so you're not right. going to go splat. Somebody asked a couple days ago, what's your favorite teachings from Jesus, you know, and here we are in Christmas. And, and so that was a, a question. And mine is the son of man has no place to rest his head for the foxes have their dens and the birds have their nests, but the son of man has no, man place, has to no place to rest so, his head, Yeah, which is exactly the point I think we're making here. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And, and this is where everything is known, everything that we can find to rest our head upon is getting taken away. And what is left is this glorious self-validating self. And not having a place to rest our head. I mean, that's, that's the freedom that really allows the field to have 100% access. Yeah. Right? And paradoxically, that's security. You know? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. You got it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's it. And there is, a, I think there's a point in all of our journeys where we start to see, oh, this is the only thing I can, I have to rely on. And it, it is a grace when we start to experience that all these things that we thought we needed are totally tenuous. They're ephemeral. They're, they're not real. Mm -hmm they'll leave, <laughs> they'll go away at some point. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of questions came in that might cause us to shift gears. Let's see what they are. Um, this is from a fellow named David in Grass Valley, California. He asks, do you feel in relation to clarity and form that there is a third term of reference, a field within which the two interact, clarity and form, or are there just clarity and form? Well, I think the form has, like what we were talking about, those subtle beings, those subtle levels, subtle realms of being, mm -hmm. which is form, okay? Because form is anything that's created. So form would be emotion and thought and feeling and then the very, very gross levels of our blood and our bone and our 
whatever. Okay. Um, the formless is that which encounters, right? That's, that's what, what's happening is, is clarity is getting to encounter form on all those different levels, right? But we must also sense that both the form and the formless are the same field. And you can feel that within your being, that aliveness within your body. You know that Buddhist saying, form is emptiness, emptiness is form? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So clarity doesn't see form as something that's not part of the same field, okay? Right. Clarity is what is seeing from field. Mm -hmm. It's that that attribute, you could say, although that's it's not really an attribute, it's just what the field is doing. So the field or clarity sees form no matter where it is in its evolution as that same field right it's all the same field so there is not two and this is the the very precise definition of non-duality is is not two mm -hmm. and so coming from clarity it sees form as itself it never sees it as separate even though aspects of form experience itself as separate mm. that's very well so, put yeah. so that would be the integration yeah. That's all. That's what integration is. It's, it's just bringing it all back in. Good. So it's conscious of itself. Because even those aspects of separation have a conscious field to them, don't they? Right? Just the thought I, me, it has a conscious field to it. It's just not a clear conscious field. Okay? So that integration is bringing that sameness all throughout its being thanks for the question david sure and in case anybody's wondering how david submitted that question on batgap.com under upcoming interviews there's a question form at the bottom of that page and if you submit a question there during an interview we will probably ask it to the guest and so if you want to do that now anybody else you're welcome to and here's another question this is from another dave but this one happens to be in halifax nova scotia Dave is asking, what is your growing edge in the unfolding as a yogi and as a teacher? My growing edge? Can I ask for a little clarification what a growing edge is? Yeah, well, it might take him a while to, to get back to us with the clarification, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to clarify because I think I know what it okay. means. And this is a question that I often ask people, towards, usually towards the end of interviews, okay. is, um, you know, like, where do you see it going from here? Usually there's some sense of a horizon in terms of, um, you know, where one's development seems to be uh, moving. And um, maybe it's unpredictable to a great extent. But, um, you know, like, you know, 50 years ago when I, or nearly 50 years ago when I learned to meditate, I had some kind of concept of where I might be 50 years from now. Uh -huh. or, or even five years from now. <laughs> I remember, I remember those back then. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have them anymore. But I, there is a sense, and that's okay. So now I get what you mean now. Um, I don't have ideas about past this moment. I have no idea, and my being only knows to open up to this that's here, 
right? That's all it, it can do. So it can't really formulate projections into where this might be going. And I, I'll, I'll be really honest with you. I, I don't feel comfortable limiting it in any way. I don't feel comfortable in trying to put it into a box of maybe, you know, put in labeling it teacher. I don't feel comfortable putting it in a box and, and setting up a lot of things, events, happenings, whatever it is, because I resonate more deeply with what's possible for us this deep sense of potential that my being, my brain, my nervous system are starting to activate. What is possible for us as integrated beings? How can we move in this world to, and be a service? And that's, that's all I know. There's an extremely strong longing that kind of really kicked in a couple of years ago. And that came from being is like, be, I just want to serve. And to that, I can only say, I can only open to what's here. And this, this is deciding. And I, my mind can't come up with anything because all of that is limiting to my being. To put it in a box of any kind, I can't. Well, I think to make it a little easier for you, I would suggest that although we can't predict specifics, you know, this might happen, that might happen, I might be playing this precise role, uh, we, we can perhaps say more general things such as, well, that, or, or even like not certainties, but I, I hope to be a more, to, to have greater capacity for love or greater wisdom or greater clarity or things like that, which kind of lets God off the hook in terms of you know, well, any... And I think that's, that's kind of a given. Yeah. That's what I... That's been the know, trend I mean, so far. God willing, it will continue to be the trend, that kind of thing. I mean, that's a, that's a good question, but, you know, I might not look so kind and loving yeah. in, in authentic being. I don't know. I remember when I first lived with Amma, she didn't look so kind and loving all the time. Right. But it is, it has a, a feeling, um, the impulse that's happening within being to, that this is for peace, mm -hmm. that this is, may all beings be happy. And I don't know what that looks like, but I can sense in my being that this is for the good of all. And I've, I've had an awareness in my being for decades and it was really beautiful. I was sitting in Tiruvannamalai in Ramana's meditation hall, having all these three, four hour long meditations. And somebody one day came up to me and she was a sweet lady. And she said, just remember, these flowers aren't for you. And it was like an angel came, you know, she just said that. And I might have said this to you before, but ever since then, I, this, this isn't for me. This is this is for the whole. This is for this field that's that knows how to perhaps bring about peace. My mind doesn't know, but there is um, a, a, a deep longing to be used for that, and deep healing 
that it's time for humanity to experience great healing. A lot's getting exposed right now. Yeah. There's exposure happening on so many levels, right? You can really feel it. That sure. seems to be a theme of the times. Yeah. And aligning ourselves with what really our soul values, really. I mean, this is this is important. And Ajay's been talking about this beautifully. What an important time to talk about this. Where are we going as a collective, right? As fellow travelers, here we are. Can we support each other in this? And that's what I intuit that this is moving into. And maybe some of these people that are interpreting it as you don't need a teacher, that's how what, what they're feeling. Maybe it's, it's an interpretation of this sense within their being that we are moving into much more collective and to be able to recognize, oh, this is happening over here and it's happening over here. And it might not be happening much in my neighborhood, <laughs> but it is taking place. Yeah. I don't know if I got off track there. Yeah, no, you did but I good. Kind of went, okay. Well, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh was the one who said the next Buddha may be the Sangha. And that kind of has a democratization connotation to it, you know, that, that, and that the, the hierarchical one-to-many kind of model, uh, it might be shifting to one of a many-to-many, -many, which is yeah. kind of the way what the Internet is. I mean, the Internet... It used to be that you had to own a television station or a newspaper to broadcast information. Now we've got this many-to-many -many model that has taken over the world. And um, I think perhaps in the spiritual realm there will be something of that kind of a dynamic also. Um, but nonetheless, I, I still think there are and will probably continue to be very bright lights within that matrix around whom yeah. others may congregate. And then that, that's still a useful Right. model or, or, or situation for those people. Right, for, for inspiration, right? Here we have people like Amma and Jesus that say, you're capable of doing this. You have this in you. You can do much greater works than this, or however he put it. You're probably better at this than me. He said, whatsoever the great things that I do, you too shall even do, do even greater things. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, you know, these words are... Those are kind of like beacons for my being. Mm -hmm. And not that I'm going to go out and do great works, but that just that inspiration, that impulse to keep going. And that's what I think the bright lights are there for. And also this resonance, this field that we were talking about, the tuning fork, that that's, where the, that's how teachings are going to start to be really integrated. The, the collective field, we're going to start to feel it more in our being, using our body, using the nervous system to start to recognize what doesn't know the truth here, what isn't integrated, and that, and just start to pay attention rather than conceptualizing teachings, using our own being, because that's where the field is, that's where it's happening. Well, you know, you just alluded to something a minute ago about how there's big shifts taking place in society. I see those as expressions or manifestations of a, a shift in collective consciousness. And by consciousness, I don't just mean attitude or, you know, or, you know, social 
perspectives or something. I mean that something deeper than that. You know, what, what we in this audience would understand to be consciousness, the most fundamental field of all, <clears throat> is getting enlivened. And through its enlivenment, like that. all kinds of dominoes are going to start falling and things are going to mm -hmm. start shifting with much greater rapidity than they have so far. Yeah. Yeah, I agree because that's what exposure does. That's what clarity does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it has a it has a purifying effect on form, right? Yeah. We're all we're all part of it and start to recognize that, you know, you're part of it right now. That's that's it. And and the more clarity can start to wake itself up and that's I think that's my role as a as a teacher and I will continue to do that, um, which is the other part of Dave's question. Um, I do see myself continuing that role. I really, I love working with people. Yeah. I really love working with people and, um, and just to, to watch people start to access that clarity within themselves is extremely satisfying for me. Yeah. So I'd say that, you know, I mean, I think this is a good time to be alive, especially if one has a a spiritual bent. It's a very opportune time for rapid evolution. Um, the, there's a wave, and you can catch that wave. And um, you know, so make you know, throwing in a lot of metaphors here, but make hay while the sun shines. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, you know, and it, to be even more precise with it, it's it's got to be to the exclusion of all other things. You well, know, it, wait a minute now. I mean, that doesn't mean you can't uh, have a family and have a job okay. <laughs> and you know, like to play tennis or something like that. Or pickleball. Or you know, pickleball. You don't want to be a fanatic. Uh, well, I hide. You got to live a balanced I mean, life. Okay, and maybe I'm using somebody else's quote that could be easily misunderstood. Mm -hmm. But let's just clarify that then to make it even more precise, not to the exclusion of other things, but to the reliance of other things. Yeah. That we're relying on the family to fulfill us, mm -hmm. or we're relying on the pickleball to give us a sense of satisfaction or dominance, yeah. or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. And thanks for the thanks for the clarification. That's really that's really fun. And you know, I I you know because I still have interests. I love to go hiking, like and I know yeah. yeah, and I I love to be outside, and I love to to I love dogs and. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't say to you, no, Joy, you should just sit there with your eyes closed and forget dogs and hiking. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, and I love having conversations and I, um, yeah. and I, yeah, and so it's not to the exclusion of other things, but to the, the, the belief that they're going to give you something. Right. And a nice aspect of it is that the spiritual development actually enhances those other things. It, it yeah. You enjoy dogs more and hiking more. And, yeah. <laughs> And you might get better at pickleball. You do. Yeah, your reflexes are faster. They've actually done studies on that, faster reaction time with uh, people who meditate. <laughs> um, there you have it. Yeah. Okay. Do you have, a, do you have another question? I, I do have a, Well, not from anybody else, but I have another note here I wanted to read from your book. Um, because okay. it has an... I think we haven't quite talked about this. If we stay open, we can experience many shifts or awakenings. Most of these shifts in consciousness will be subtle, and the invitations to see will become increasingly more subtle. If we stay open, we will free ourselves of the desire for a big shift. And I, have, I found that it is the subtle shifts that really add up to develop a mature perspective. And I think the reason I 
excerpted that quote was that some people are waiting for the big shift, you know, the, the kind of the, the fireworks to go off. And they might wait forever for that and yet have undergone profound development, which somebody else with a nervous system wired slightly differently might have achieved through a big dramatic contrasting shift. But that is no more significant than what this more incremental person has achieved. So a lot of times people will get like what I call gifts mm -hmm. and those are usually the big ones. <laughs> they're, they're the ones that give the being a big opportunity to see in a very, very obvious way, mm. right? It's good. It's, it's almost essential for us to see in an obvious way the transparency of the illusion of what things it separate, okay? And that's that's all it is. It's just Sometimes something you that need they need that too. You need a big sort of knock over the head. To obvious, <laughs> yeah. And that's what happened for me, you know, when I was in my twenties. What has transpired since then are more ordinary things. It's not a big special thing at all. You know, fortunately for me, after the big one came a lot of it opened the way for for deeper work on the emotions and on the on the being. Yeah. Which was essential for me to continue on my journey. I had to do that. And we all probably do. But yet these moving into the ordinary of life you know i've got a day job and you're a librarian right librarian yeah. and it's here in my little town where pretty much everybody knows who i am i'm the librarian mm -hmm. it doesn't allow me any place to be a kind of a teacher i'm, I'm not really a teacher here in this town so I go to work, which has been really healthy for me. None of my coworkers are interested in any of this stuff, mm -hmm. nothing. So I'm moving into the relative on where consciousness is in any moment in my conversations. And it's amazing all those places that be in being that can start to see, start to try to maintain some separation when it's encountering something that it doesn't necessarily agree with. Mm. Does that make sense? I think so. Okay. Because we're all going to have like perspectives. And if we've had big shifts, we're going to have like, it's going to be easy to project our perspectives onto others or onto life. Mm. Unless we're really integrated and you know and that's what has to follow from big shifts big or small so that yeah. you function as a normal person uh, exactly. and, and without making a big fuss about yourself exactly exactly yeah. so here we here we are in you know in the day job and nobody has this nobody sees things maybe the same way you did and that that was very obvious to me when i first came back from india 15 years ago, I started to say, wow, people don't act, people see things different. And I had no idea that I had anything had happened at that point. But that was kind of my first clue. But there was still a lot of separation or seemingly 
unintegrated parts of my being that were starting to show up in this circumstance of living a very simple, ordinary life. And those were the places that clarity really wanted to start to see. Oh, this is trying to maintain some sort of perception, right? Yeah. This is finding some place because it's it's all about where it's trying to hide, where it's trying to maintain separation. Right. If we feel separation in our body, there's separation still in our body. And it's going to be, it's been my experience that it's these very ordinary circumstances and situations in life, very simple, that are going to start to really show those places up that are extremely important for yeah. integration. Let me interject a question here that came in from Paul in Santa Cruz, um, which is relevant to what we're talking about. Um, he asks, can one's tendency for solitude in the spiritual quest actually be a form of individual contraction and a form of repulsion towards other humans? This in and of itself might be one of the knots you speak of. This is something I encounter in myself. Oh, Paul just emailed and said what? Oh, by, he meant to say repulsion by humanity, not towards. So in other words, repulsion, I think you can make something out of that. But to me, again, that, that speaks of the necessity for integration. Yeah, and I think there's a time that solitude is important yeah. because distraction is also very, very easy to do in, in the world. You know, yeah. it's distraction is everywhere and people are going to find ways to distract themselves right. rather than encounter themselves. And I think the solitude piece is a beautiful time to start to see maybe what's still trying to distract from encountering itself really fully. Yeah. I think, Paul, it's important for you to, to start to practice discernment for yourself because this isn't, a, there's not a blanket answer. It's definitely possible, though, that it can be, solitude can be a form of protection, which I also have seen in people when I first came back from India, I really wanted solitude. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be alone and be very quiet and life provided the means for me to do it, but I still had to work a day job. So that gave me the means to still participate in life and in our little community. I, you know, I stuff was coming up still. And so it gave me the opportunity to keep things moving. And then as in going home to my quiet life was a way to kind of still provide the nurturing and the nourishment to being that still needed. I needed that still. Um, my, when I came back from India, my being was going through quite a bit of turmoil and, and, and trying to reorient itself into a new way of operating. So too much solitude if we're not having any kind of engagement with life, it's not going to give us much opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a really important thing to find that balance, which for me at that time was living alone. And this lasted for quite a while, I think about seven years. And then I was working that day job. And then it was really interesting. I started to notice 
another movement that felt like it wanted to become even more engaging in life. And so I moved to town. It started to feel a little too isolated. It wanted to engage more. I didn't need those periods of being alone and being integrated and being with myself or maybe being with the stuff that came up during the day, right? So it doesn't quite need to remove itself anymore like it used to. And yet you're not going out to discos until three in the morning or something. You know, there's just sort of a, a, a level of activity and engagement that's appropriate for you and in your nervous system. I mean, I w I've been on like six month meditation retreats and stuff when if you just went into town to buy toothpaste, it was like, oh, yeah. get, let me get back to my room. You know, this is too much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, so you need to there, there needs to be integration. There's, there's a, well, you said it. There's a time for retreat and in silence and in inwardness and there's a time for integration of that and that mm -hmm. and that necessitates engagement in activity engagement with other people engagement with the world um, otherwise you know if it's if it's this thing that we can only sustain when we're kind of sitting in our room uh, it's not really it's not stabilized and and something's going to disrupt it so you know yeah you you know it's amazing when you can when you can sit in this room that's like the perfect temperature and the perfect lighting and there's no noise and still yeah. you're still not quite settled into your being um and th it, this is important just to use our discernment about am i hiding am i using this desire to be alone as a means to feel safe um, because that's another way for people to feel safe and comfortable because it's what we've known, it's what we can deal with. Moving back into life and in a very integrated way, it's, it's simple and it's ordinary and nobody's going to really recognize that you are. But there's something in your being that really is very satisfying because it wants to move into form, mm -hmm. right? Formless ones, it wants to move into form. It wants to be in, in the mix. Yeah. Thanks for your question, though. Yeah, good one. Uh, hopefully, um, it, the answer was appropriate. I mean, yeah. valuable. And you know what you do, Joy, I think is a good prescription for possibly for, was it Paul, I think his name was, and, and for people in general, and many people I've spoken to. Nature is a very nice healing kind of thing to um, yeah. be in and to you know hike in and swim in and, and so on. It's very grounding, very um, nourishing. And, you know, so if you're feeling kind of a little bit too inward or something, you know, maybe some physical activity in, in the good out of doors would be just the prescription. Yeah. Movement. Yeah. Get out there. And even getting out in the great out of doors for some people, that can be kind of scary. I've noticed that, you know, some people aren't so comfortable just going out there, hike it on a trail by themselves. Yeah. Just tell people where you're going, you know? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> it, yeah, but you know, it's, it's, it, it's important to get out of our comfort zone. It really is. It's, you got to mix it up. And, you know, for me, India was the big one. That was a big getting out of the comfort zone. Oh, yeah. And it was hard. It was hard on the nervous system. But it was also that kind of, what we have to do is start to become aware of familiar tendencies within our being 
those are the little wake-up calls yeah. inside the familiar tendencies, what we tend to fall back into. So I'm going to read one little quote, one final little quote from your book that I think would be a nice note to end on. You can comment or not comment, however you feel, but I just thought this was sweet. You said, our world is a beautiful place. It is not something we should dismiss as being only a dream. Yeah. Yeah, I'll comment on it because, you know, the experience of, of this that's moving through our being we all know this this there's a deep desire to connect and that's often coming from our from truth that true essence within our being it's looking for intimacy with itself and it's going to find it it has the capacity the potential to find it everywhere mm -hmm. And this is coming back into the simple, ordinary place when it finds this intimacy with people it doesn't know, you know, the waitress that comes to the table, whoever, the dog down the street, whatever it might be, there's a sense of completion that happens in finding intimacy everywhere in the world. And so this is our opportunity, right? This yeah. is this is it. So uh, that was that invitation right yeah. there. God is hiding in plain sight. You know, the world is the divine. That waitress that comes to your table is God in, in the form of a waitress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that dog, yeah. that whatever. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thanks, Joy. This has been a marvelous couple of hours. And... Yeah. Um, I will be putting up all the usual information for people to get in touch with you and find your website and all that stuff. So anyone listening to this can do that. Go to batgap.com and you'll, you'll see Joy's page and also the page for her previous interview, which you might wish to listen to. And um, I'll probably see you in June, hopefully, when I'm a yeah. Santa Fe. Hope so. Yeah. Yeah. And and thank you so much. I mean, what a what a great time to to actually share this. You know, over the holidays, where just that sense of the sacred is just a little closer. I don't know. It yeah, feels I actually have my Christmas good. shirt on, but you can't quite see it. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting down, sort of love it. I remember this today. <laughs> thanks for wearing your Christmas shirt, Rick. Yeah. yeah. So and every yeah, and thanks to everybody that's joining us with the questions, and it was really really fun. Yeah, yeah thank yeah, you. I thank you all, and and so just a final wrap up point or two. Um, you know, this is an ongoing series of interviews, as you must know. And uh, if you want to find out more, go to batgap.com. And in addition to Joy's interview, you'll see all the other ones, and you'll see a place to sign up for the email notification of new interviews and a link to the audio podcast if that if you prefer that to video and a bunch of other stuff just poke around on the site and you'll find what is there to offer or what is there so thanks joy thanks rick see all right you, see you again see you again happy holidays